Morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you all this morning. Uh, I think I've been here now probably a dozen times, and uh, for some reason, Carlos keeps on leaving every time I show up. So I don't know if he's trying to avoid me. I'm not sure. We'll figure it out. Uh, I'll talk to him at some point. Uh, This morning, I'm going to uh, be preaching to you all from Psalm 104. Uh, There are several different types of psalms that we find in the book of Psalms. There's psalms of lament, there's psalms of praises, there's messianic psalms. This psalm that we come to together this morning is a psalm of praise. It begins and ends with the words, bless the Lord, O my soul, which signifies to us that the psalmist is praising God, that that's the intent of of what he writes to us today. But this psalm is unique because this psalm not only praises God, but praises a specific aspect of who God is. That God is the creator God, that this psalm in poetic form retells the story of Genesis 1 as it lays out to us who this God is and why he is worthy of our worship. So we want to look at this psalm together this morning. We want to see this God who has created all things, but we also want to see this God who in this creation has knitted our lives together as his creation to the Creator God. We want to see that this psalm gives us this vast image, this picture of a God who creates, but a God also who invites us to live in His creation, to give our lives of work and all of our lives as worship to Him. Let's look together at Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, cover yourself, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. He covered it with deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you had appointed for them. You set the boundaries that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and and plants for man to cultivate, that he might bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir tree. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are the refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for its setting. You make darkness and it is night when the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lion roars for its prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made all things. 
The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living beasts, uh, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you have formed to play with in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have reflected on your word, as we have reflected on your wonders that are revealed to us in creation, May we see your wonders that are revealed to us by your spirit through your word this morning. As we open up your word, as you speak to us through it, Lord, may we know more of you. May we love you more and may you strengthen us for the week ahead. It's your name that we pray. Amen. In 1997, uh, it was a great year. I was uh, about to go into first grade, so that gives you a little bit of perspective on how old I am. Uh, but 1997 uh, was, was the year that Steve Jobs returned to Apple. I've shared with you a story before. I read his biography recently, interesting book. Uh, but he was let go of Apple in 1985. Uh, he went on and had a couple successful um, ventures after that, not least of which is Pixar. Uh, he was still the CEO of Pixar by, in 1997 when he came back to Apple. But after Apple had had uh, several unsuccessful launches once Steve Jobs left, you might remember uh, in 1984 they launched the Apple II. Uh, Steve was still there. He was fired a year later, but that was the only successful computer launch between 1994 and 1997. They launched the Lisa II and the Macintosh, which were huge failures. So by 97, this company that Steve had started that he had been fired from was hemorrhaging. Uh, And so the board invited him to come back in as CEO. As soon as he took over, he immediately fired the guy who fired him, John Sully. Uh, Very good move on his part. Uh, But he he then took over as the CEO. But at this time, Apple only had 5% of the computer market. They were a small fish in a big pond. Microsoft was really winning out the market, having probably, you know, in the, in the 30, 40, 50% of the market share, having software that was available on all the different computers. They had originally had a licensing agreement that they would only make software for Apple, but they broke that agreement uh, and started making uh, software for all of the different computer companies that were out. Well, Steve came back to Apple in 1997, and he had one vision for this small computer company that he had started that he loved so much. He had this vision that Apple would create a fully integrated system, that Apple would be different than the other computer companies that existed out there, the other tech companies, because Apple would create a fully integrated system. That means that Apple 
will not only own the computer that you use, but also the iTunes that you listen to music on and the Apple Store that you buy the music from and the Apple Watch that you wear or the phone that you have in your pocket. What Steve wanted to do with this very small company was he wanted to have a company that was totally end-to-end integrated. That Apple controlled all of the user experience, which I think we all know where that ended up. Because in the next several decades, Apple became the largest tech company, the largest computer company of all times. That here this tiny company then grew to be the largest company, all because of the singular vision that Steve brought when he came back in 1997. That Apple would, be, would create this fully integrated platform. That Apple would control not just you using your computer as you log in, but also many experiences that you have with technology. And similarly, as we come to Psalm 104, what we see is that God has created a universe. He's created a world and put us in it that is a fully integrated world. That there is not just one aspect, our Sunday morning and the couple of hours that we give that belong to him, but what Psalm 104 depicts to us, what it shows for us, is that God has designed us to live all of our lives before him. That God has designed for us to live a fully integrated life, that, that all that we do, that all that we are, is given fully to this God who created us. And if you're like me, I think that's where oftentimes we struggle. We struggle living in relationship to this God who, who requires all from us. That sometimes we struggle with, with giving all of ourselves in. We say, you know, God, you can have my family. You can have my worship. But, you know, my bonus, that's not yours. Or, God, you know, when, when I file my expense reports, that, that's kind of my time. That's not your time. Or how I'm going to live in my career, how I'm going to interact with my coworkers, what I'm going to do for a living. God, those things belong to me. And what God is asking of us here in Psalm 104, what he's inviting us into is this reality that he is the God who created us, and not only the God who created us, but the very God who sustains us. And he invites us to live all of our lives before him in this fully integrated creation. But not just our worship, but also our work, our families, every aspect of who we are belongs to him. And it's lived fully before him and fully to him. What Psalm 104 depicts for us today is that we can live fully to God because he has given himself fully to us. We can live fully to this God because he has given himself fully to us. And we want to see that together in three ways this morning. We want to see first a God who works. We want to see second, a creation that responds. And finally, we want to see redeemed hearts that praise him. First, a God who works, a creation that responds, and redeemed hearts that praise him. So, The psalm opens up, as I already said, with a poetic uh, depiction of the creation story of Genesis 1. Uh, The psalmist says in verse 2, God, you cover yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. It says, next, he lays the beams of his chamber on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides 
on the wings of the wind. Verse 5, he sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Jumping down to verse 9, you set the boundaries that they may not pass, so they may, um, so they may not cover the earth again. Psalm 104 depicts for us a God who is a creator. The God, it tells the story in poetic form of Genesis chapter 1. It shows us this God, as, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, we see again here in Psalm 104, this God who enters into work. When we open up the Bible, when we open up Psalm 104, we see a God who has his hands in the dirt. We see a God who's not afraid to roll up his sleeves, a God who is not afraid of work. In fact, we see a God who enters into work. We see a God as depicted here in Psalm 104, who's an architect, who's an electrician. We see a God who is a mason, a God who is a framer. He's laying the foundations of the earth. He's designing the plan for how things should go. He's lighting up the heavens. He's putting together the structure, the frame of the earth, of the universe, that God is doing all these things related to the very tasks, the very things that he calls us into ourselves. That this God is a God of work. This God gives us the very design, the very blueprint for our work. He models for us what it means to work. That this God, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, as we see again in Psalm 104, is in fact a worker that this God models for us the reality. He gives us the prototype for what our lives are meant to be in his creation. But I think if, if you and I are honest with ourselves, that's oftentimes where we struggle with, with working and living in creation as God has designed it to be. There was an article that ran a couple of years ago in 2019, The Atlantic. It was, it's called, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And what this article is about is about this reality that, that you and I in, in the 21st century, where, where work has really become everything, it, you know, if you, I, I share this example oftentimes, you know, if you, you go travel on an airplane, what's the first thing you do if, if you are bold enough to talk to the person next to you? What's the first question you ask? What is it that you do? That, that our identity, our lives are bound up in, in what we do in our work. And, and oftentimes what the, what the Atlantic exposes is that the very thing that we worship is also the thing that could fire us. That the, the very thing we give ourselves to is the thing that, that also has this control over us and can fire us at any moment. And that becomes a very challenging place for you and I to live in that we, we give so much of ourselves to this thing that's called work, and yet it requires so much of us. And, and this reality is depicted also in the scriptures. That as you go to uh, Genesis chapter 3, as you see what it talks about when it says that we were created to work, it also says that work has fallen. That as Adam and Eve fall into sin, that also their work has fallen. And we see this harsh reality around us all the time. But what Psalm 104 invites us to is this other reality. It's just that while we live in this world and while work is broken, while work is fallen, that work was actually created by God and work is actually good. Because what is the work that God enters into here in Psalm 104? Is he not doing things in his work? Is, is his work not for good? and not evil? 
Is his work not to produce the goodness that is around us? Is his work not a thing of the goodness, as, as it says day after day in the creation narrative? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And it's this reality, this image that God is inviting us into here in Psalm 104. He's saying that while work is hard, work is also good. And work is also given to us as a gift from our God. It's actually modeled for us by our God. And it's something that as we turn to next, that we are invited into as his creation. We see, jumping down to verse 14 and 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. That here in Psalm 104, what is shown to us is that these things are found throughout creation. Here is this, this harvest that God has caused by sending forth the rains on the earth. And then here's this wine, this oil is bread. And, and unlike that, that my, maybe my kids imagine, you know, that we can go out and just pick bread off a tree. These things aren't just sitting there for us to grab. How do we get the wine? How do we get the oil? How do we get the bread? Are these not the products of human hands? And yet Psalm 104 says these are gifts from God. These are gifts from our Creator, that He gave these things to us. But how do we get them? Well, we all know the answer to that. We get them through our labors. As Luther said in, in his, doctrine of, his, his little book on the doctrine of vocation, he said that when you say the Lord's Prayer, and when you thank God for your daily bread, remember to thank God for the farmer who harvested the wheat, for the baker who baked the bread, and for the grocer who sold that to you. That when you remember that God is giving us our daily bread, when we're thanking Him for that, we're also acknowledging the labors that go into those things. And this is what Psalm 104 shows us, that, that God calls His creation to enter into His work, to provide for each other through the very things that He has left around us in creation. But not only is this about us providing for ourselves, but as we think about this within the context of ancient Israel, when we think about this within the context within which it was written, how did Israel look at these products? How did they look at the wine, the oil, and the bread? Well, these were also things that they offered up in the temple and worshiped to God. That when they were called to come in to give the grain offering or the drink offering or the grain or, or, or the oil offering, they were called to give back these products and worship to their God. That not only are, are they products to sustain us, but they're also things that we offer back up to God and worship. And, and this draws this close connection that oftentimes you and I are uncomfortable within our lives, this close connection between our work and our worship, that, that what Psalm 104 is submitting to us today is that our work actually can be, as Ephesians says, as Paul says to us in Ephesians, that our work can be an act of worship back to our God. That the thing He has called us to do so many hours of, of our lives, that these very things are also given back to God and worship to Him. I recently was able to uh, take a trip to um, Durham, North Carolina. We had a, a meeting there 
And uh, the last day uh, I was with Craig, Craig and I walked into uh, the chapel there on Duke's campus. Beautiful chapel, uh, not quite as beautiful as this church, but almost. It's it's close, close second. Uh, but you know these these huge Gothic ceilings, stained glass windows. You know they don't build churches like this anymore. Uh, and and I was researching this week uh, on I, I'd remembered an old story of. Uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. I'm probably butchering how you pronounce the name. Uh, But, you know, that cathedral, I don't know if you know this, but it took 300 years for them to build this in France. 300 years. They started it uh, in in, uh, the 1100s. They finished it in the 1300s. This cathedral, which was the site where Henry VI was married, it was the site where Napoleon crowned himself king, this historic cathedral that actually stood as kind of the centerpiece of, of, of French cultural and religious life ever since it was completed in the, 13th, uh, in, in, the, in the 1300s, the 14th century. But if you think about that, you know, this, this, this cathedral that they built over all these years, it took seven generations of workers. That your dad was the mason who started it, and your great-great-great-grandson was the mason who finished it that the architect who started that project was not the one who saw it to completion. That all of these people within that community there in Paris, that they gave of themselves generationally to the completion of this project. And I was looking it up, the the World Trade Center, before they went down to tallest buildings in the world at the time, it took six years to complete that, the building of one of the buildings. There's the tallest building currently in the world in Dubai, it took six years for them to construct that. Obviously, had thousands you know, of, of labors and that, but think about this, 300 years. What would compel a people, what would compel someone to give themselves generationally to this type of project? It can only be in part due to the reality of seeing our work as something that's greater than ourselves. Seeing our work as something that is, that is something that we do for others, but is something that's given to us as a gift from God. That as they were building this cathedral over generations and generations, seeing you know, levels and levels coming up, not seeing the finished product, but seeing it coming to that point. That those workers involved must have seen, you know, there is something greater going on here than, than even I myself understand that there's a greater purpose and a greater end to this project than even myself. Because this is part of a a more grander reality. This is part of that our work is connected to God's grand reality. To to grasp that reality, that, that what we do here and now is not just about us, but it's about God and His greater reality. That our work is something that's not just about us, but it's about God's greater reality. And, and what we see in Psalm 104, as we turn to our last point here, is that we see that God not only wants our work, He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts in our work. What, what God is asking of us is that we would give ourselves fully to Him. In our lives and our vocation, that we would give all of ourselves to this God. That our work must be motivated by our faith and our work must be driven by our faith. That what we do in this world 
for this God must also be a product of our faith. That as God has called each of us to a unique place in this world, whether it's as, as a boss or a worker or a mother or a father or a teacher, it's no accident that you are in those places and God has called us to fully be there. But in those places, God has called us to fully give ourselves to him. He has called us to be engaged with him in those spaces because this God who created us is also the God who fully loves us, who knows us. As we see at the end of the psalm, he reminds us of that our work is not just for the present, it's also for eternity. He says in verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord a new song. As long as I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditations be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The psalmist reminds us here at the end that God is eternal. That what we do in the here and now, that it is vitally important to God, that he has called us to those places. But this world doesn't end when we die because this world continues to go on. And what we see here in verse 35 is that there is a real heaven and there is a real hell. But God has created us to know him and to be in relationship with him forever. What we see this psalmist pointing us to is is what we call the telos, the end of our work. My my kids uh, this week they they watched we watched two of the Toy Story movies. Uh, the the we watched the the second and, and the fifth. But the first two movies they kind of center around this this narrative as in the first movie Buzz and in the second movie Woody are trying to figure out what it means to be a toy. And there's this line that they each say to each other in in those movies. Buzz says it as we were watching in Toy Story two to Woody. He says Woody. You are a toy, a child's plaything. Because as Buzz and Ham and and, um, Slinky all go off to save Woody in Toy Story 2, he's found himself at this house and he's going to be displayed in this museum for the rest of his life. He says, "That's, that's what I'm here for. This is important to me. And Buzz says, no, it's not. Because you as a toy are made to be played with. Similarly for us, we have to understand what were we made, what is the, our telos, what is our end in this world? Jonathan Edwards has a book, I'm switching from Toy Story to Jonathan Edwards, that's a big jump, okay? <laughs> Jonathan Edwards has a book, The End for Which God Created the World. And he says that our end is to be loved by God. That God, out of his love, created us, and when we fell out of his love, redeemed us. But that's not the end of the story. Because God's purpose for us is ultimately to live in fellowship with him and to be loved by him forever. That, that what God's desire in creation is, what God's desire in redemption is, what God's desire in the resurrection and the glory is for us to be loved. And we, experience, we can experience that now. 
and for forever. What Psalm 104 is is submitting to us is the very God who created us, is the God who redeems us, who calls us in all of our lives to live before him both now and forever. And what we get to experience now is life in his presence. That we get to experience now the very love that he has created us for, the very love that he has redeemed us to, And the very object of that love, which is to be in his presence forever. And all that we do now, what God is calling us to, is to live fully and completely to him. That he is calling us to understand that we are loved by him, that we are redeemed by him, and we will forever be loved by him. And so our goal in this life, our mission in this life, What he calls us to now is to live fully to him and wherever he has placed us throughout his creation. Because it's not by accident, but it's by his design. And through this design, he calls us and and shapes us and forms us and brings us back into his presence where we will live for all eternity. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning that you have loved us before the foundations of the earth, that you have redeemed us through Christ, and that you have a glorified purpose for us forever. We thank you that in the here and now that you have called us to live as your people scattered throughout this world. We pray that you would form us and shape us by your spirit and by your presence. You form us and shape us by your word this morning. May you work within us. May you cause us to know and to love you. And may you guide us by your grace. It's your name that we pray. Amen.